welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis, so it's a Brother, Brother podcast. And today we're joined by Ray Paget, whose new book, Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time, is out this week on Sterling Press. So uh, run out to your local bookstore or uh, do what everybody else does and, and go to Amazon and order it, because it's awesome. Um, thanks for coming, Ray. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, so... I'm going to start with a really open-ended question, which is, what, what's, what started the fascination with covers? So it started back in college, about a, a little over a decade ago. I, what, actually, what started specifically is I heard Bob Dylan, uh, you may, some people may remember, had briefly a serious radio show for like a couple years, and what he would do is every week he would basically play a bunch of songs on a certain theme. And one week, he, the theme was summer. And he opened it with a version of the Gershwin Brothers' classic, Summertime, one of the most covered songs of all time. And I'd heard a bunch of versions, and they all sort of sounded the same. Torch song, you know, kind of jazzy, slow, languid. But he opened it with this version of by the, a short-lived soul singer named Billy Stewart from the 60s. And it's insanely high. It's high-paced. It's fast. It's exciting. It's like a scatting and horns. And all of a sudden I said, wait, you can do that? Like, I, I didn't know you could do this song so differently than every other version. I thought you had to do it the same way. And so that sort of started me down the rabbit hole of finding these other versions of songs that sound totally different than the originals or the ones I knew. That's cool. Well, the book is, is the stories behind the cover songs, and, and um, I'm sure there's a story behind Summertime by uh, Billy Stewart, but... Um, look, tell us how you, you sort of select because I mean the, the list is endless is it you know the most interesting stories because there's a lot of research there's a lot of info in here and it's um, so what, what brought you to these 20 songs yeah you got, you're exactly right stories came first I pretty early on decided you know you could there are so many great covers you could do a book of 100 or 200 or 500 songs but that's sort of just like a Wikipedia you know I, I wanted to instead of being broad, I wanted to go deep. It also keeps you from going outside for the rest of your life, probably. <laughs> yeah, right. It's way deep. So, yeah, so the first thing was uh, they had to have a good story. There's a ton of great covers that are not in the book, either because they didn't have a good story, or I wanted to do as much sort of original research as possible, so in some cases, you know, there aren't enough people still around to tell those stories that I could interview, so I sort of narrowed it down. I mean, most of the songs in the book are iconic. you got Aretha, you got Talking Heads, you got Elvis... Um, but in every case, there was sort of a, a, enough meat there of, of how it happened to fill, you know, 4,000 words, and I wanted to use, you know, those 20 songs to, to trace the arc of the cover overall from the first one's Elvis, so from the 50s through today. Yeah, I, I happened upon this um, through your uh, article in The New Yorker, which is a, a full chapter from the book on Devo covering Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So, I mean, people haven't... Uh, come to that. That one's out in the public. So why don't you tell us a little bit of that story just because I thought it was really fascinating sure. and fun. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get me no satisfaction. And I try, 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 and I try. I can't get no, I can't get me no when I'm riding in my car and a man comes home.
No, that's a great example because it's, it's a great cover first and foremost, but also it's a fantastic story. So the story there, um, in a nutshell, is that Devo at the time were like, this was very early on for them, they were sort of hip in the art scene of Akron, which I can't imagine was very large, but they were it. But no one else was interested in them, no one else knew about them, no one else cared about them. And they were sort of putting out these singles that people were like, this is weird. We don't, you know, labels aren't interested. No one is, is interested because it's just too oddball. Then they come up with this cover of Satisfaction that is equally oddball. But because people know the original song, people say, oh, okay, I, I, I know Satisfaction. And this is very different, but like, this is a way in. The catch, though, and this is what a lot of the piece was about, is that it was so out there that their label decided... You know, you, don't, you normally don't need someone to approve a cover. You can cover the Beatles, and you don't have to get Paul McCartney's express permission to do so. You can just do it and pay him a little money. But the label said, this is so weird that we don't want Mick Jagger or the Rolling Stones getting pissed off and suing us. So you need to get Mick Jagger's permission to put this out. And they, they were a baby band from Akron. They, you know, had never met anyone famous in their life before, but, but they get put into a room with Mick Jagger and who's, who's sitting there to approve their cover. And they're just sitting there at this conference table, boombox right in the center, no one's talking, no one's making eye contact, super awkward, Mick Jagger looks hungover or tired or both. Then they play the song, Mick Jagger just sits there. This very weird cover of the song he wrote is playing, he's just sitting there stone-faced. Then after about 60 seconds of just painful nervousness and awkwardness, he gets up, and without a word, just starts dancing around the room, doing the rooster dance, doing all the Mick Jagger dance moves, and that was doing, that was the approval they needed. Doing was, the uncontrollable urge, he was <laughs> handing down his verdict, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and dance. Form. And dance. His verdict yeah. and dance. Is there? I mean, with in in Devo's case, you know, it's it's a rock band, obviously covering um, covering another sort of iconic rock group. Uh, I, I'm curious, though, you know, is there a, a theme in terms of the, the quality of covers between, you know, one genre that, that covers another particularly well, whether it's, um, you know, country musicians covering New Wave or punk bands covering soul singers, you know, what are the sort of uh, uh, genre-based... Uh, well, both of those are very good. I think, in general, it's best just if you cross genres, period, or to some degree are changing it up. I mean, that's sort of always my line is people say, what's the worst cover of all time? There's, you know, some people say American Pie, my Madonna. You got to, you got to pick. It's, 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 uh, it's Train's album covering Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, the recent one. That was just a couple years ago. So faithful. I think that was, I think that was our blog's first uh, one star review. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but, but you, you hit it exactly right though. That that's why it's so bad. Well, I mean, Train could have done many things that would not have been great. But that's why it's so bad. Is faithful is the worst. If yeah. you just do it exactly the same way, why are you doing it? So if you're crossing a genre. I would say great. Um, in terms of more specifics, yeah, I think soul music lends itself really well to covers in either rock or country. There are a million great ones there. Um, you know, something like arty rock and roll. You know, we talked about Devo, the Talking Heads, doing Take Me to the River. That's also in the book. That's another sort of classic. Also, you know, a cover of Al Green. Um, the one genre that sort of the I say so. Every, any cross genre is good, except for hip hop. And the reason is hip hop just they don't do many covers. In hip hop, it's sort of the either the sample or the remix is like their version of a cover. Um, 
where they're you know honoring another song in some way but adding their own thing. So I would love to see more rappers do covers, but uh, that's the one genre that is sadly lacking. It's know, a different, um, as you say, it's a different way of, uh, of sort of honoring. Um, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, and what it is is great, but they don't do make. Although, although Chance the Rapper every now and then will do an Honest to God cover. He did a cover of the Arthur, uh, if I remember the TV show Arthur, the animated children's show. Hell yeah. He did a cover show. of that theme song, and it was fantastic. I thought you were going with the Christopher Cross Arthur theme from Arthur. <laughs> But um, I, I have to. Interject. I would love to hear Chance do that too. I'm just. I, I, wanna, I just have to interject one uh, quick uh, one because actually the worst cover of all time was a cross genre cover, and it was a band called Will to Power covering "Baby I Love Your Way" and "Freebird" Ooh. back in the early '90s, Sounds and they bad. did it as like a soft rock with a reggae tinge, and it was a number one hit. It was one of the worst songs ever. <laughs> so I'm UB forty red red wine is sort of the best band. You said soft rock with a reggae tinge, and no, I, my, like my mind went straight to UB forty. Husband and wife team. No one's mind should ever. Oh, UB forty. Oh. Wait, what? Like, did they just? Yeah, they strike out on every single possible category. And so actually, the husband and wife team soft rock reggae. Speaking of UB forty, though, as a lyric, though, I think uh, the Bangles going down to Liverpool is a great cover. I don't know if you were familiar with that one. That's a good one. Well, the, so the one hip hop, in fact, I, I'm struggling to think of any, and the only one that popped, like, the only thing that comes to mind, and it's not, arguably, it's not really hip hop. It's sort of it's the it's um, on the score, uh, the Fuji's. Fuji's yeah, that's, on the well, that's, that's pretty faithful, right? You cover that in here, correct? Yeah, so that's that's a great example, um, and yeah, that's one of the chapters in the book because it seemed ridiculous to be writing a history of any music and like not include hip hop. Strumming my pain with his fingers Singing my life with his words Killing me softly with his song Killing me softly with his song Telling my whole life with his words Killing me softly with his was a cover. Um, but what they did to make it hip-hop, because the rest of the album, it's a rap album, and they're like, there's no rapping on this song. And so they couldn't figure out how to do it until um, Praz once was listening to the Tribe Called Quest song, Bonita Applebaum, and it has a really insistent beat. 
and he got the beat stuck in his head, and without even quite realizing it, he started singing the lyrics to Killing Me Softly over the Tribe Called Quest beat. And once he made that connection, he said, that's it. And that's, that's the song. If you listen to the Fuji's version of Killing Me Softly, it's Roberta Flack's vocals plus uh, Tribe Called Quest beat. Roberta Applebaum. Roberta Applebaum. An yeah. odd connection to make, <laughs> but a great one. We were talking about the Crash Honor thing, and I think, you know, like Sturgill doing The Promise or... Uh, in your in your book here, the uh, Pet Shop Boys covering what I thought was a Willie Nelson original. <laughs> I, I go pretty deep. I'd like to dive deep on this stuff. I didn't realize there was such a history behind that song that it had been a failed single for like six, five <laughs> people before. <laughs> Including Elvis. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that... I, I mean, Willie was such a great songwriter. I had no idea that it was written by the same guy that wrote uh, the letter for the box tops as well. Yeah. Well, so with... I mean, uh, building on, on that sort of question, I mean, is there some is there some notion that, like, the timing has to be right for one of these songs to be successful if it's a, if it's a cover? I mean, as you say, it was, it was um, performed by a number of different artists before it was a success for Willie. Was it just that, you know, you think that, that his voice and, and that particular arrangement was, was right for that song, or was it that maybe the world wasn't ready and it needed a couple of more, you know, need a longer gestation period? It can, I think it can go both ways. Um, yeah, sometimes a song will come out Another example from the book is Unchained Melody, um, the Righteous Brothers song, that in both cases, they, both Always in My Mind and All with Unchained Melody and a bunch of other hit covers, had been sort of sitting for like a decade or more, been covered over and over, nothing is, is clicking, and somehow, and then one artist comes along and sort of finally, you know, hits that magic, and at some point, sometimes it's the vocals, and sometimes it's the music, and sometimes, you're right, it's just sort of, maybe they have the right promotion behind it, maybe... It's a song that people, you know, didn't hear in the right way before, and now they do. Um, but then again, in other cases in the book, it's, you know, a song that's only been around for a year, and uh, one person did it, no one heard it, and then a year later, someone did it, and it became famous. So I, I think it can go either way. And tell us a little bit about the, um, like, I mean, sort of turning the, the clock back a little bit. Um, when were, I mean, when did we first, you know, hear the earliest covers, right? Because, I mean, of course, there were, you know, people saying traditionals for a long time, um, and I think there were there were fewer uh, qualms with sort of licensing issues originally, yeah. but, but when did this the become a sort of yeah. a clear, <laughs> yeah, when, when did this become a sort of clear uh, a genre or concept in its own right? The 50s and 60s, basically, because you're right. Essentially, before then, just about everything was a cover. There, there were two job categories. One was singer and one was songwriter. And, you know, never the twain shall meet. The singer-songwriter was not really a category. You know, Frank Sinatra wasn't sitting with pen to paper writing all his songs. And even before that, you know, technically every version of a Mozart thing was a cover, you know. Um, but then in the 50s and 60s, you know, like with the Beatles and Bob Dylan in particular, these are both acts that started off doing covers but pretty quickly began writing their own songs. And at that point, things shifted. And it became, you know, paramount that an artist would write their own songs in most cases. And because of that, when an artist didn't write their own songs, now it's a separate category. Now you say, oh, on this Beatles album, there's a cover. Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, on this Frank Sinatra album, there's a cover. On this Frank Sinatra album, it's all covers. Um, and so no one would have thought of it like that. So yeah, so I, it's the rise of the singer-songwriter is sort of where I, where I pin it to. Well, speaking of songwriters, I think there's certain, you know, there's certain... I, I, I mean, how much of, of this magic alchemy that happens in a great cover song is the presence of a, of a great song, or, I mean, so, is great, presence of great songcraft? Because I, I think, when I think of 
you know, the songwriters who have such an indelible signature. I mean, people have covered Dylan forever and done great things with mm-hmm. covered a lot of Prince songs, mm-hmm. did great things. People covered a lot of Barry Gibb songs, um, Neil Diamond songs. Um, yeah. You know, those Willie. are Willie. Yeah, I mean, but that so there, there, there's a sort of there's a uh, you know there are a small faction of great songwriters who people have singer songwriters, I should say, or performers songwriters. And you know that they have produced a vast number of yeah. great covers of all time. What uh, what percentage or, or what's the formula that you think uh, Songcraft sort of plays in? Well, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. The first thing is you have to have a great song. If you don't have a great song, you're not going to have a great cover. You can't you know make gold out of dirt. Um, and Dylan's a great example because he's someone who wouldn't. I mean he he'd be fine, but he wouldn't be anywhere near as famous he was without covers. He's never had you know a number one hit on his own, but he's had a number of number one hits with, you know, the Turtles and Peter, Paul, and Mary and and the Birds. Um, I write about Hendrix in the book. Adele. Adele, yeah. You know, his songs are better known through covers than the originals. Leonard Cohen would be another, you know, sort of major example of that. Um, So a song, you know, there's no magic formula, but a song that other people can find their way into in some way, that other people can make their own, and, you know, whatever that means is up to the, the songwriter and the interpreter. Accepting it from others, you know. I think 
Dr. Dre being the one guy who somehow gets away with this, and I actually think that it, it, it illustrates your point even more in the sense that he brings to bear another you know, musical skill set in, in, in the studio. And the, the point being that, you know, if you're just the, um, if it's just about the, the flow and the, um, the lyric writing, then, you know, you take away the lyric writing and that's, that's half of the, the skill set right there. I think that's a really interesting point. Well, that, but that's, it's funny because it's antithetical to the, the entire country, world of country music where right. that division is still very that's much That's the exhausted. opposite, yeah. And, you know, there are people who, who write their own songs, but they're, I mean, some of the greats, I mean, you take Johnny Cash throughout his career, huge, obviously huge Dylan fan, uh, but then you know he ends his career with the American Recordings songs, and um, you know I mean that's I believe it was a five albums worth of four covers. during his lifetime and then two and posthumously. Then oh, two posthumous. I mean, what? So, what's your feeling on the on the Cash American Recordings stuff? Oh, I think it's fantastic. That's it's the second to last chapter in the book because it's a great example of someone, you know, really sort of embracing the cover song. He write, he does these, you know, four albums during his life, and there's, you know, maybe you can count on one hand the number of his own songs that are on there. It's basically all covers, and it's covers of artists he loves, and it's covers, covers of artists he's never heard of that his producer, Rick Rubin, basically foisted upon him, like back in Nine Inch Nails, which is the one I write about. And the amazing thing is that not only are they great recordings, though they are, but it, you know, he was an old exact before this started. He was, you know, doing the, like, county fair circuit just and it had been for you know a decade or more and this all of a sudden now he's cool it revitalizes his career doing these covers so it's sort of a, a huge well, success well, story for the covers I was the uh, you know personal story was you know people always ask me what my favorite show I ever saw was mm-hmm. and the day I graduated from the day I finished college uh, Polly uh, and I I took her to see uh, Johnny Cash at the old Studio 54 oh that's amazing and it was about hmm half full at most maybe you know less than half full Um, and you could go by Marty Stewart was playing guitar for him and you could go buy a beer and you could set it on the stage right in front of (laughs) Johnny Cash and it was nobody was there it was wild and that was so what what year roughly would this Uh, that would be about nine months before uh, you know the American recording sessions oh yeah so you caught it right at the tail end 1992 Back. Yeah. yeah, I mean that was that. Uh, Rick Rubin is really credited with sort of revitalizing his spirit in some respects. I mean, he was certainly, I, I think the the um, the story goes sort of down in the dumps at that point, precisely because he could barely fill the old studio fifty four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> after a, an otherwise pretty illustrious career, um, you know, Rick Rubin obviously has sort of had an eye for um, inspiring these types of musical collaborations and combinations before? Is there, I mean, are there, are there other figures who um, sort of have that sixth sense to, to spot this stuff and sort of make these, um, make these connections happen for other people? That's a great question. Um, Rick Rubin has definitely been sort of the, the totem for that. I mean, what's interesting is that, again, this was, a, this was sort of a, a career path up until the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. I mean, another person that would often pick out songs, or, or you know, these famous producers like a Clive Davis type, would would do that, or a Jerry Wexler. You know, these there were there was a whole industry of record execs who that was their job is to say, Aretha, sing this song. You know, whoever Whitney sings this sing, song, I will always love you.
Yeah, although that was actually Kevin Costner. Was it really? <laughs> yeah, oh, not not job. not his day job. Um, yeah, there's a fun that that there's a funny story in the book about that. So essentially, so as I'm sure everyone knows, that was you know from the Bodyguard, massive massive hit. But she was not supposed to sing "I Will Always Love You" in the Bodyguard. She was supposed to sing this um, another soul song, or I should say, a soul song, because that wasn't a soul song before she did it. She was supposed to sing this uh, "What Becomes of the Brokenhearted," a sort of oldies hit, mm-hmm. and then. Like a month before she's supposed to record this thing, I don't remember who, but some other singer does a cover of it for a movie, and it starts moving up the charts. It starts doing okay. And so all of a sudden she says, well, I can't do this song. It's going to look like I ripped this other guy off. And so they're sort of casting around, and Kevin Costner, her, her uh, co-star in The Bodyguard of all people, says, hey, have you ever heard this song, I Will Always Love You, uh, by Dolly Parton? And she says, no. But they go out and they buy the record, and uh, you know the rest, as they say, is history. But uh, I don't think he ever did it again. I wouldn't say he's got a career out of doing it, but you know he's one for one. Did you ever hear <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Did you ever hear Dolly Parton tell this story? Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, she's <laughs> so Dolly Parton. There's a great it, hers is a great story, and it's probably what you're getting at. Where she um, years earlier, um, Elvis had wanted to cover her song. And uh, she was she was excited about it. I mean, who wouldn't be? Elvis is going to cover your song. That's amazing. He's an icon. But uh, Colonel Tom Parker's manager by this point had made a practice of, hey, I'm going to cover your song, but you got to give me half of the songwriting rights. Elvis, of course, had, did not write a word of anything, but because they wanted more money, Dolly has to now claim that he's going to he wrote half of it, which means not only does he get half of the publishing from his version, it means he gets half of the publishing from her version in the future, from other people covering it, just in perpetuity. All of a sudden, Elvis Presley, or his estate, is collecting all this money for a song he didn't write. So, yeah, so she says no, and um, is, you know, crushed by it, and that's the end of the story for, like, a decade until Whitney comes along, and she's got a great quote where she talks about how sad she was about Elvis, but then because she kept those publishing worlds all to herself, and Whitney had the hit, she says, I made enough money to buy Graceland. This <laughs> is always was one of my favorites. Oh, it's, oh fantastic quote! Well, do you have a, a like a dr- like a dream cover that like you could if you could take any, a dream scenario, dreams that like any band, any yeah. singer, living or dead, and any song, and pair them up. Ooh, ooh, man, that's a great question. I gotta think about that for a minute. Hmm, dream cover. It's not one of those pauses you need to edit out. I think about it. Oh, you, we can come back to it. And, uh, you know, we'll give you to the end of the, end of okay, the show yeah. and we'll come back to you. And at some point you're going to go, oh, and uh, <laughs> you're going to blurt it out. What's the, I mean, so these obviously have, have some, uh, I mean, amazing uh, uh, stories behind them, the ones that you selected for the book. I'm curious, were there any um, in particular that you were, uh, you know, that, that you were upset you sort of had to leave on the, the cutting room floor? Yeah, there's one. There's one good one that um, is uh, it's sort of appropriate for a music book. There's an outtake. There's a, a written chapter that I'll post on my blog sometime that I'd get cut for space, and it's Led Zeppelin doing Dazed and Confused, um, and it was just cut because it was super long, and you know you can only fit so many words in. But that's a great story where, you know, it ties into it ties in a lot of the legal stuff, which for some people is maybe not all that interesting. But in the cover world, it comes up a lot. We were just talking about the Devo thing where they had to get permission. Led Zeppelin went the other way and just didn't get permission. They would just cover songs but claimed they wrote them. 
they did this numerous times and got sued, you know, endlessly, um, including Dazed and Confused, which they, you know, Jimmy Page heard the original songwriter do it, and when he was in the Yardbirds, and the Yardbirds covered it, and then he sort of brought it to Led Zeppelin basically the same way, and he claims his original, and then, you know, years of lawsuits ensue. Um, so, so that's sort of the one, you know, actually written outtake, but there were a ton of other songs I would have loved to write about that, for one reason or another, the stories weren't that interesting, or just I ran out of time, or, you know, just, like, favorite covers of mine. We, we build a, um, a Spotify playlist for every episode, so throw out some specifics uh, of, of the ones that you wish you could have written about and couldn't, and then we can put them on the... Oh, sure, okay. Um... Let's see. So there's that. Well, here's an interesting one. Cindy Lauper, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, was originally written and sung by a dude, which is sort of bizarre because if a dude is singing Girls Just Want to Have Fun, it changes the entire, the entire, meaning, yeah. the entire dynamic of the song. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he was, I don't even remember his name. He's, you know, no one has ever heard of him except he wrote, he wrote and recorded this song and she, gets, she got to it. So that's, that, that's a great one. Um, Actually, she has a, a handful of great covers. I mean, when you were oh, alive, Prince, yeah, um, and also um, I, I believe "Time After Time" was written by the guy in the Hooters, <laughs> who also incidentally wrote uh, "What If God Was One of Us" for Joan Prince, Osborne. Princeton. No, the Hooters guy oh, did. Oh, really? I yeah, thought, I always thought that was a Princeton. <laughs> no, the, Ho- the Hooters guy. Uh, Prince is actually, I think, he covered "What If God Was One of Us," no. like in his later years. So yeah, that would definitely be one. Um, well, speaking of Prince, Sinead O'Connor doing nothing compares to you. I tried desperately to get an interview with Sinead, but you know, she's sort of got her own... She's had various problems, and she's not exactly doing interviews, so I would have, you know, I, that's a, one of the best covers of all time. I think so, because we're trying to get a, an interview with Joan Osborne. The Prince interview is not happening. Um, well, that, yeah, that I, too. <laughs> I do. I do think nothing compares to you is one of the greatest covers yeah. of all time. I mean, but some of these are, are, I'm sure, great covers that don't necessarily have you know wild stories behind them, and, and that's what's so cool about the book is that these stories are, are you know, so uh, a, you know, like I said, well researched, but they're also just really compelling. And if you're a you know nerd out music person like I am, this is one to celebrate. There's, there's a wonderful sort of unpredictability to it when you start tugging on that thread, too. I mean, it's sort of, you know, where, where the many layers of, of publishing rights, you know, might lead you, and, and how many different genres it will pass through along the way, right? Yeah, it, it, that's the thing. That's the interesting thing with covers. They tie into so much of sort of the history of the music business, and you know, legal things, and performances, and artists is, you know, there's sort of an angle, and that, I, that's part of the reason I tried to pick the 20 I did, is I wanted ones that sort of touched on all these things, because they come up again and again in the history of the covers. Richard Ashcroft, which he had read, read this before uh, he recorded uh, <laughs> um, Bittersweet Symphony. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, there's other, there's other covers. It, it's always fascinated me when, when you can go a really long time without knowing something's a cover, because oh, yeah. it, the song is so obscure. I mean, I remember it was very front and center when R.E.M. did Superman, that it was a cover, but nobody had ever heard that song before, and it, yeah. beca- it was such a great one. Pylons, Crazy was another one mm-hmm. that R.E.M. did. They were a pretty good cover band. They, uh, they did a yeah, they did cover a, of Toys in the Attic, too. Like the name, they did a great Wire cover on uh, one of their albums. Yeah, they did, they did, a, you know, they did amazing covers. Um, that's another one. You know, there are so many that I would have loved to write about in the book that just ended up not getting in. But, you know, there's a sequel. i got to get R.E.M. in. Elastica did a great cover of Wire too, yeah. without with Jimmy Page. Yeah, but so do you have a uh, do you have a favorite of all time, or can you can is it this is a is this choosing your favorite child kind of thing? 
Well, my, my, no. Or do you no. have a favorite? Child? I do have a. Fa- <laughs> I do have a favorite. No, I don't have any kids, but I do. Have, my favorite is is Summertime by Billy Stewart, which is not just because it's great though it is, but also because it sort of started me on the journey. Um, that was one that I talked about a little bit in the intro, but again, there wasn't really much of a story, and everyone was dead, including him. So it's not actually an official chapter of the books of the actual ones in the book. That's a little like choosing a favorite child. That's hard. But I was just earlier today. I'll pick this one because I was just listening to it. Is the Pet Shop Boys been always on my mind? Is, I mean, that's that's you know one of the greatest covers period of all time. It's on the very very short list, and it and it, it exemplifies everything that's great about a cover, where you just totally dramatically make the song something not only that the songwriter didn't intend, but that any of the previous performers never intended. No one, no one came up with this except for these two guys. Um, and you know, it's one of the all time greats. Ooh, I love the radio. I actually had this happen to me recently, and part of what we talk about on the podcast is, you know, this sort of 
experiential piece of, of having lived through stuff as opposed to yeah. like going back researching it. And um, so I was talking to a kid who was probably, I think, 19 or 20, and um, we were listening to Tears for Fears, Mad World, and he goes, is this an original? And uh, <laughs> he, Because he'd only ever heard the cover that's, you know, really good and, and fairly... Um, ubiquitous, but it, it is, um, you know, if you're a certain, I, I remember as a kid myself not knowing that, you know, the Do Run Run by Sean Cassidy was a cover. You know what I mean? It's, you know, when you're young, you just don't know these things. What are some of the ones that took you by surprise that were covers as you grew up? Oh my God. Ah, uh, well, I, I will always love you is sort of an obvious example. So that was, you know, sort of when I first, you know, was of the age and I was listening to, you know, the radio and Top 40 radio, that was, you know, one of the biggest songs in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, it was ubiquitous, and it was, came out in 92, it was probably 15 years before I learned that was a cover, you know, because, and Natalie, really thing, actually, I've been thinking about a lot, because, um, and maybe you, I wanna, I'd be curious what you think, if, I wonder if you could get away with that anymore. Not to say they're trying to pull fast one, but, you know, no one is typically emphasizing that this is a cover. Whitney Houston is not going far and wide. Natalie really was not going far and wide talking about how she's covering it, sort of, this little buried, buried nugget before the internet. But I just wonder if that happened. You'd think there'd be so many articles now, right? Like blog posts. Did you know that this was a cover? Did you know that this was a cover? If, if you tried to sort of do a cover yeah, but not mention that it was a cover. <laughs> no, exactly. It's like, uh, and it's, it's, hard, it's hard to imagine anybody copying, um, you know, copying paragraphs of text into an essay uh, in their college papers anymore, and yet I'm pretty sure it happens all the time. So it's so much harder to get away with. But this is a little, yeah, this is a little bit more. That. <laughs> this is a little, uh, a little more, you know, a little more planned, I think. Um, and I, I'm sure you're right. There was not necessarily a, a conspiracy here, but probably some awareness on the part of the the. Um, label that was behind Natalie Brugge on this, that, you know, they weren't going to, nobody was going to go uh, running to Sweden and sort of unearth the original version of this and start circulating it. But the other factor here is just, well, if one's obviously better of superior quality or, you know, superior recording quality or something like that, um, you know, then then uh, they, it's much more marketable, I suppose. Yeah. So. Well, that's always my argument, is you don't need to be ashamed to be doing a cover. I, sort of one of the reasons I wrote this book is to defend the cover and say, doing a great cover is every bit as difficult and amazing and impressive as writing your own great song. But for so long, you know, it's sort of been, oh, that's a cover, or like, you know, again, well, you're trying to hide it, or it's a little embarrassing that your, your big hit is a cover. Um, whereas, so my argument is that well, that never should be embarrassing. Well, that, that's that's true. There's no denying that. But if it's a big enough hit, you'll it be fine anyway. Do you think that the dynamics around shows like um, American Idol or X Factor, things like that, have actually helped to destigmatize the the cover song a little bit? I mean, obviously, you know, these artists are, are effectively propelled to, to pop stardom, um, largely covering, you know, other people's songs um, on a stage and, you know, Millions of Americans or British uh, folks are watching, so I mean, I wonder if that if that helps to sort of take the edge off for some people. My sense is, I think that's a good theory. My sense is that's probably true. The combination of American Idol and just sort of YouTube, you know, I think there's, I think there is less stigma than there was fifteen or twenty years ago. Um, yeah, American Idol, you know, all these people, it's sort of, you're you're not picking a deliberately obscure song and trying to pretend you wrote it. It's the opposite. You're picking a song that people already know and love. You know, Hallelujah is sort of the 
the yeah, obvious example because they're just you know every five minutes someone yeah. in Orlando shows well, singing Hallelujah. That, that's another one that essentially is a cover of a cover. So the you know the Leonard Cohen version has nothing in common delivery wise with the Jeff Buckley mm-hmm. version. And the Jeff Buckley version is a copy of another. Who I can't. John Cale. John is it John Cale? Yeah. yeah, John Cale. Uh, is that from the Paris? Um, but it's so. What what are some of the ones that that sort of stand out to you as the uh, you know the sort of the song was written and intended to be one thing. It was then covered, and then the cover of the cover is the is the gem. You know? Oh, that's uh, another example that's similar to that one, but spread out over way more years. Is um, "Killing Me Softly" because Roberta Flack, that one is a cover, and it's a cover of this sort of simpering country pop ballad by uh, this woman named Lori Lieberman. Um, and Roberta Flack covers it and makes a big hit, etc. Then 20 years goes by, the Fugees, who have never heard of Lori Lieberman, have no idea that Roberta Flack is not the original. They do this, you know, massive, huge smash hit cover in 96 of Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly. But of course, Killing Me Softly is not originally by Roberta Flack, it's originally by Lori Lieberman, who sort of gets forgotten in the story sometimes. But it's a great example, similar to, you know, Hallelujah, where it's not just one person covering another, it's this chain, mm-hmm. chain reaction of covers. It's a build. It's yeah, exactly. Build. Without, the, without Roberta doing the middle one, which obviously is great in its own right, but the Fugees never would have heard the song. Almost a game of telephone. Yeah, right, because you're, if you're covering the cover and have never heard the original, um, which actually, the funny thing is that's true for, um, we talk about I'll Always Love You, and that's true there. And in that case, they did know that Dolly Parton had written and recorded it, but it, they did it on such a short time frame that they couldn't actually find Dolly Parton's version in the record store. This was before Spotify. This was like the night before. They have to go try to find the song to teach Whitney it. And the only version they had in the record store was Linda Ronstadt's cover. And so Whitney is learning it off of Linda Ronstadt's cover, which, not to say it sounds anything like uh, Linda Ronstadt, but... <laughs> another <laughs> person another who had a, a huge career in, in covers. Covers, right. Yeah, when she was covering Buddy Holly fairly really... It's, it's interesting to me, too, when, when one artist does a series of covers. I mean, obviously the first, I think, three Birds hits were Dylan songs. Mm-hmm. Um, Linda Ronstadt had more than one hit with Buddy Holly tunes. Um, it's, it's interesting when somebody sort of finds a a muse in, in something, in recording artists that's come before, not just a songwriter, you know what I mean? Um, you know, because you've got things like, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry. The, the Rick Strips did it a ton with Blues Tradition, I mean with yeah, yeah, Fletch Belly and Sunhouse, House, yeah, yeah, House, exactly, probably. John the Revelator, Ball and Chain, was it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, The Who is another example uh, from the book. They were covering, I think, like four or five Eddie Cochran songs in their early sets. And again, Eddie Cochran was, who knows, like a sort of 50s rockabilly guy, and a lot of people would say, oh, he sounds a lot like all the other 50s rockabilly, I mean, not to knock him, but like there's a whole category, but the Who was like, no, we're not covering, uh, we're not covering, you know, Buddy Holly, we're not covering the early Elvis stuff, we're covering Eddie Cochran. And they covered a bunch of his songs, Summertime Blues being the one that, you know, people remember, but there were a whole bunch that they were like, this is our guy, this is our muse, we're just going to cover a huge number of Eddie Cochran tunes. Yeah, I mean, and, and the Sex Pistols covered Eddie Cochran a lot as well. Yeah. He's another one who sort of has lived on through covers. And died at 23 years old. There you go. And Good thing people keep covering him.
Twitter and you're all times a favorite cover and, and you know, partly because of the story, partly obviously the Sonic themselves, but are there any just like total strikeouts that, that just deserve to be sort of, you know, wiped out. off the face of the earth, basically? Have <laughs> you brought the light or you brought <laughs> <Yes>. the justice? <laughs> uh, a lot, sadly. Like a whole lot. One um one recent one, which it's depressing me. So, so your listeners have probably a better musical taste. They may not know this, but actually, by chart numbers, the biggest hit, the biggest cover of the past few years, by some margin, is Disturbed covering the Sound of Silence. I thought you were going to say Darius Rucker's uh, Wagon Wheel, but all right. That was that's... probably the biggest from before. <laughs> that was that was a few years old, but yeah, that that's that's another Sound example. Sound of Silence. Disturbed. The and, Simon Garfunkel. Yes, yeah, Simon Garfunkel song. And again, no, it didn't sort of penetrate the you know critical uh, mindset. <laughs> Certainly, no, but I so I didn't even realize it was a it was I, it was such a hit until like a year later. But it was massive in terms of alternative rock radio, in terms of things like iTunes downloads. I mean, and it's it, it's atrocious. It's you hear disturbed sound of silence, you say it can't be as bad as I imagined it is. Then you listen to it, like, oh no, it is. Or, it is or, every bit as bad as I imagined. There must be some cross-genre twist here that's going to provide, like, that will create at least, you know, enough originality that, like, this could be listenable, but no? Well, right. Well, it's, some, it's like sometimes when you go to a restaurant and there's something that seems so some odd that you're like, yeah. they must know something I don't. And sometimes it's, like, the best thing on the menu. Yeah. That was not the case. Yeah. Sometimes For it's not you, it's them. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a bad um, Madonna doing uh, American Pie... I think that was from one of the Austin Powers. That was pretty brutal. Wait, is yeah, that one is. I hate Lenny Kravitz doing American Woman, frankly. Okay, (laughs) well, that's another one that I feel like a lot of people, including myself, I think. I don't think I knew that was a cover at the time. I think I found that a few years later. When would that have been? Like late nineties? No, mid nineties. It was also for an Austin Powers movie. That's why I mentioned it. there was uh, Austin Powers movies. I, I applaud them for trying to get all these covers out in the world, but not a great, not a great record. No, it's it's a scary one. They used Quincy Jones song though as the uh, as the yeah. main theme song. But that was a that was a TV theme from a Canada, Canadian uh, game show called uh, What's My Definition. That's where I learned what the silliest looking instrument of all time is, which is the cuica. Uh, what is the cuica? It's sort of like a gourd drum looking thing that you uh, that you kind of punch your fist. <laughs> basically, yeah, no, you hold it in your lap. And the best part is that it makes this kind of like squeaking, honking noise every time you do it. So it has like the added humor of, of, of really, you need to look up like Quika practice. These are some of the best YouTube videos you'll ever watch. Yeah, yeah, I think there was a, there was a lot of time in the in the. 80s and, and 90s when punk bands tried to go ironic and, and cover songs that they shouldn't have. Now there's a lot of bad versions. Mrs. Robinson? Yeah, actually, that's not such a bad cover, I don't think. Uh, but Lemonheads? Lemonheads? Um, but, you know, and, and certainly Husker Du had, you know, a great run with um, Eight Miles High mm-hmm. and, and That Love Is All Around, the Mary Tyler Moore theme. Yeah. It sounded ironic, but it turned into a great pop song. I, I always thought Mandy by Barry Manilow would make a great punk pop song. That's the thing. A lot of these bands that cover sort of like like a Husker Du that are covering songs quote unquote ironically. In many cases, you know, you find that actually they just appreciate good song craft. And even if the original was you know some you know simpering pop hit, they they see underneath and say, no, this is a really well written song. We're not covering it just to rip on it. Or we actually think there's a lot there. 
they thought they were doing a very faithful cover of the original. They just couldn't, you know. <laughs> the video. This is we we think, yeah we we were talking about them recently and obviously in light of Grant Hart and, and sort of the the idea that they really did believe they were doing one thing and they just sounded a completely you know they yeah, thought they, they were, thought they were destined yeah. for well that's great I mean that's so many good covers Talking Heads are like that too I interviewed David right. Byrne for the book and he was saying we didn't try to reinvent Take Me to the River we really wanted to sound like Al Green we yeah. were just terrible at it that is my best Al Green impression yeah, yeah. it's just a really bad Al Green impression but it's a great Talking Heads impression <laughs> yeah been on my mind recently. Um, so I think last night Bruce Springsteen opened his you know Broadway thing where he's doing all these you know sort of solo acoustic shows, and he's he's doing all his own songs. There's not going to you know it's sort of a standard set list, but Bruce doing you know he does tons of covers like with the full band when they they do cover Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry you know sort of rock and roll things with the Street Band. But I would adore him to do. He did a couple years ago this acoustic um, solo cover cover of Lord's Royals, and it was just this sort of plaintive, beautiful, emotional song. He just did it live once, maybe twice. And I was thinking I would love him to do just like a full album of just solo, acoustic, and it wouldn't have to be like pop songs. I was thinking basically any Clash song. Bruce doing like a solo, acoustic, slowed down version of a Clash song would be amazing, or just, you know, any sort of punk rock song, Sex Pistols would be, mm. would be just fantastic. He doesn't do it, he doesn't do that much. Um, but I've I've been thinking about that with this with these solo shows that I would love him to, you know, sort of take the opportunity to just cover some some songs that he loves. I think, um, you know, obviously in the wake of Tom Petty's sudden passing, which is you know mm-hmm. really sad news. Um, you know, there 
there was there will be a lot of Tom Petty tributes, a lot of covers. Yeah, already are. Wilco did a cover. The um, National did one yesterday. Yeah, they're coming. But I always fast. thought you know a couple of uh, Petty's live staples were great covers. I mean, obviously they you know say you want to be a rock and roll star. Mm-hmm. Birds. Yeah, do, he used to do a great cover of Thunderclap Newman, Something in the Air. And yeah, he did. I don't remember which song, but he did a great Bo Diddley cover on and off over the years. He was someone well, kind of like Bruce, but he would he was often someone who would pick, you know, songs from his youth, songs from the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. that he loved, and would just, you know, the band is so tight, and just rock them out. Although, randomly, in, in I think, 96, he, for a, for a movie soundtrack, he did a cover of Beck. He did a version of Beck's Asshole. Oh, really? That is, it's fantastic. And I, I don't, I, I've never been able to find any backstory on this. It may just be that some music supervisor somewhere. Was it from She's the One? The yeah, She's the, the One. Before, yeah. Ed Burns' movie? Yeah, and it's amazing. Um, so I don't know if he picked it himself, but you know he he's he'd be also sad. Sadly, it's you know too late now. But I would have loved him to do like an acoustic, you know, like a Johnny Cash thing, mm-hmm. or like more like Dylan's been doing the past three years, where you just say the hell with record sales. I'm just gonna play a bunch of songs I love and do them my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a, a anybody with a really strong sort of vocal signature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is able to absolutely. Sturgill's, yeah, he's he doesn't do covers much, but he did The Promise, and then he did um, Nirvana on his, his last album, and in both cases, they were just fantastic. I think that, you know, that'll probably be a signature for him going forward, where, um, and I, I can't like I sing anything, so. Yeah, God, I, I hope every album has, has a cover. Maybe, let's just make that a rule. Every album by anyone has to include a cover. I would I would support that, that law if Congress wants to make a move on that. Well, oh, yeah. unfortunately, Congress isn't getting much done these days, so that's not going to become a law. <laughs> but that's now their number one priority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they do get back to work, I yeah. think that needs to be prioritized. Anyway, um, well, I just want to say thank you, Ray. This thank is, you, guys. This is such a treat to, to talk. We can geek out for another five hours, but we're going to let you go home. <laughs> this is terrific. So, yeah, everybody, uh, definitely check out Cover Me, uh, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>